All right, good morning, Five Stones Church. Glad we can be together. Okay, so this morning, um, as we turn to the message, you can open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 25. Uh, We're continuing in our series from the life of David. We are tracing the the difficulties, really extreme difficulties that David was going through uh, because the numerous attempts on his life by King Saul. And uh, to place the story in the timeline of of David's life, he's in his 20s. And the prophet Samuel uh, has already selected him and anointed him to be king, but there is this period of time between his selection and his actual installment, roughly 15 years. And so we're in that period in his life now where we're looking at the difficulties that he's walking through. Uh, And as we get into the word, let me just open with a word of prayer. So Father, we thank you for your eternal word. We thank you for its power. We thank you for how it speaks to our heart in all seasons, in all ages. And so, Jesus, we ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would quicken to our hearts the things that we need to hear. Let us have ears to hear. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have seen uh, over the last few chapters how God has intervened to rescue and protect young David at every turn. Uh, In chapter 19, we saw that his wife, Michael, uh, rescued him by luring him down through a window in the middle of the night. You know, now that we're watching Netflix and we see all these action-adventure movies, we're literally seeing some of these uh, scenes being played out right here in the Bible where David had to escape just by the skin of his teeth. In chapter 20, we saw that friendship came to David's rescue in the form of his relationship with Jonathan. And we shared at length about this beautiful covenant relationship between Jonathan and David. And even though Jonathan was the heir apparent and had the succession should have gone to him, yet he formed this bond with David and even rescued David from his father's attempts to kill him. In chapter 21, we saw that a priest came to David's rescue by the name of Ahimelech, hiding him from Saul's troops and provisioning him with food and even handing over Goliath's sword as a weapon for David in his ongoing battles. In chapter 21, we saw David's acting ability rescue him from a situation as he was put in front of Achish, the Philistine king of Gath. And David, in his creativity, acted like a man-man, and so in a one-act insanity play, he was able to keep himself from harm. Then in chapter 23, a telegram came to the rescue of David. Uh, King Saul was literally chasing David's troops around a mountain. They were circling one another, and David was about to be apprehended. And all of a sudden, a telegram comes. A messenger comes to King Saul and says, Call off the troops. The Philistines are attacking us. It's an emergency raid. So Saul pulls back his troops, and once again, David is spared. And then in 24, humorously, A bowel movement, yes, a bowel movement came to David's rescue as King Saul ends up in the same cave as David and his men while the king was relieving himself. Now, if you have not read these chapters, please go into the Bible and read this yourself. It's a crazy scene. And I'm thinking, how could David and his men keep quiet and not laugh or snicker as they hear the king doing his business? It's really embarrassing. This was a life and death situation for David, yet David and his troops end up witnessing the king's bio break. 
as they were hiding in the recesses of these caves. You can't say that God's sovereignty doesn't work in creative ways. Well, then we come to the story here in chapter 25, and it's a different rescue story altogether. This is not a continuation of David being rescued from Saul, but rather David being rescued from himself through the wise actions of a woman named Abigail. So here's how the story goes. David and his men have escaped to a region called the Wilderness of Paran. Uh, because Saul has called off his troops. And so this is giving David and his men some relief from Saul's continual chasing. Now, while David's men are patrolling the desert lands, they make sure to protect the flocks and possessions of the other herdsmen. Uh, For David's men, if you recall from chapter 22, when David went to the cave of Adullam, the scripture says that men who are in distress and in great debt gathered to him. So these were guys that were not good with their money, they were in debt, they overspent, and as they were patrolling these herds, they could have been very tempted to take a few livestock here and there to pay off their bills. But in fact, none of them did this, and it speaks to David's leadership and the respect that his team had for him, despite their own dire personal financial needs. Now one of the herds that was protected by David's men was owned by a man named Nabal. In Hebrew, it's Naval, but we'll say Nabal in the English way. And the scripture says in verse 2 of chapter 25 that he was very rich, owning 3,000 sheep and 1,000 cattle. During this time, it was also the annual sheep shearing. So, you know, sheep, they grow their wool. Once it gets nice and thick, they'll shave it off once a year. Mimi and I, for our anniversary, uh, we went to New Zealand, and one of the The joys that I had was to see an actual sheep shearing. And, you know, when these things just grow woolly and thick, it's like, it's exciting for the owners because they get to shear the sheep, in many cases sell it. So it's a festival time, um, as the owners would celebrate the financial blessing of their livestock. So given uh, the festivities, David thought, you know, this is a natural and appropriate time to ask for some food and provision. Since David's men had provided security duty for Nabal's sheep and goats, from raiders, from wild animals that would try to prey on the flocks, we know that David defeated the lion and the bear when he was a shepherd because this is what happens in the animal kingdom. Obviously, wild animals or beasts come to prey on the weaker ones. So David's team was able to preserve Nabal's flock protecting his bottom line. So this had very practical financial outcomes. So we read here in verse 7 and 8, and we're going to be reading various passages here, so hope you have your Bible, digital or otherwise, to follow along with me. It's also on our PowerPoint. So we read here in verse 7 and 8 David's request. He says to Nabal's representatives, I've heard that you have shears, as in it's the shearing time. Now your shepherds have been with us, We've not harmed them, nor has anything of theirs gone missing all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we've come on a festive day. Please give whatever your hand, uh, whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. So he makes this request, and Nabal's 
herdsmen testify that indeed David's protection was true. So it says here, the men, as in Nabal's shepherds speaking to Nabal's, said, the men were very good to us and we were not harmed, nor did anything go missing as long as we went with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now, in those days, um, it was a long-held custom in the Arab desert regions that when this kind of protection was given, it was expected that there be some tribute in the form of food and supplies as a way to say thank you. But when David brings this request, we see how Nabal responds. He wouldn't have anything of it. Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from their master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to the men whose origin I do not know? Now when David heard this, he was absolutely furious. And instantly he said to his men, Strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. Then in verse 21, David said, It's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness, so that nothing of his was missing. He's paid me back evil for good. May the Lord deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. I mean, David is on a mission to wipe out Nabal and his entire camp. Now, I've included this version from the King James because it really brings out in the King James version the anger of David. And so it says here, So and more also do God unto the enemies of David, if I leave all that pertains to him by the morning light, any that pisseth against any wall. So we can say that David was clearly pissed off, and uh, the Bible actually uses the word pisseth. So this really paints a vivid picture for us of the emotion and the anger that was inside David's heart. Nabal's ingratitude made his blood boil. Now this is where Abigail, the heroine of the story, enters. Abigail was Nabal's wife, and she could not have been more opposite than her husband. The Bible describes Nabal as greedy, hard-hearted, and hated by his workers. In fact, in verse 3, the Bible says of Nabal that the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. Now, when you read the word Calebite, instantly your mind goes to the famous Caleb, right? And the one who was paired with Joshua, when they came back and, and told the people of Israel, we need to go into the promised land. So Caleb was a very famous figure. But the scripture is not commending Nabal in the lineage of Caleb, of Caleb. But in the common Hebrew syntax, Caleb refers to a dog. So when the scripture says he was a Calebite, it was not commending Nabal as an honorable man, but a dog. So this was an insult as opposed to a compliment. And in verse 17, the scripture adds that Nabal was such a worthless man that no one could speak to him. So we have this very strong contrasting picture between Nabal 
and his wife. Because we see in verse 3 that Abigail is described as intelligent and beautiful in appearance. And her name meant the joy of her father. She was probably the apple of her father's eye with such a name. Maybe she was an only daughter or maybe she was the favored daughter. All we know is that her dad was so excited about her, he named her Abigail to represent the joy of his heart. Now how someone so beautiful and lovely could marry such a beast is not explained in the text. But you know, in modern day, we, we look at the newspapers, we look at the internet, we see a lot of beautiful women that end up marrying very wealthy men. Well, that happened in these ancient times as well. So you have beautiful Abigail marrying this ogre. How did this happen? Well, we could probably surmise that given that marriage were arranged in those days, Nabal was drawn to Abigail's attractiveness, and Abigail's parents were probably quite excited to see their daughter marry into wealth. Unfortunately, it was a really bad match. And even Abigail said of her husband, he is worthless. But Nabal's horrible character was not her, on her mind at this moment. It was his surliness that created this situation, and now death and tragedy were afoot. So she quickly moved to intervene to stop the massacre. So this is what the scripture tells us. Again, follow along with me here as we walk through some of these verses. Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine, five, 500 sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and 100 cakes of raisin and 200 cakes of figs. She loaded them on the donkey. So, I mean, man, she is just loading up you know, the provisions for David and his men. Then she said to her young men, go ahead of me. Behold, I'm coming after you. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into the mountain ravine, there, uh, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey, bowed down before David with her face on the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. She's saying this of her husband. He is just like his name, which in the original language means fool, and folly has gone with him. As for me, my, as for me, my your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. The Lord your God will certainly make you a lasting dynasty for my Lord, because you fight the Lord's battles, and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel. Verse 31, here is the key. My Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. So this is a moment of great intervention. 
David was bent on killing Nabal and destroying everything he had. Nabal should have shown his gratitude and given the provisions just like Abigail did. But for David to go and kill Nabal and destroy his household would have been to shed innocent blood and return sin for sin. It would have been wrong and displeasing in the eyes of God. David was so adrenaline-fueled in his rage, he couldn't see what he was doing. But Abigail saw what was happening. Yes, her husband was wicked and worthless, but David was about to commit an act that would lace him with regret for the rest of his life. And as verse 31 told us, Abigail appealed to David's conscience, his overreach, and she won the day. Her words turned back David's wrath. So we see how Abigail moved with great wisdom. Number one, she saw the big picture and the dynamics and the consequences of the situation had David followed through with his, re- with his revenge. She didn't break down into just a puddle of emotions. Rather, she sprung into action, understanding the things that were at hand. We see that in its place of disaster, she secured a win-win. Her family was saved, and David's reputation was spared from a needless and grievous indiscretion. She knew the way and manner to pull off this intervention. Ecclesiastes 8 verse 5 says, Wisdom knows the proper time and procedure. So we see the way that this story unfolded, that Abigail was very urgent. She understood this was the time to go, not a moment to waste. Had she even waited, David and his men may have descended on the camp and ended up killing them all before Abigail even had a chance to talk to them. So she rushed quickly. She understood the, the urgency of the moment, was able to engage David as he was coming into the camp, and she understood, okay, I need to bring all these provisions. And so through her wisdom and her discernment, she was able to stop this massacre. Of course, David was very grateful that this word of wisdom came to him. And so we find that this is how the story ends. After David went back, Abigail came to her husband Nabal, and behold, he was having a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was cheerful within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him so that he became like a stone. Ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Now when David hears about the news of his death, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of the shame inflicted on me by the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his wife. Abigail got up quickly, rode on a donkey, and with her five female attendants who accompanied her, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. So what a a turn of events. Abigail was focused on saving her family, and helping David, and in that sense, the nation. And instead, she ends up becoming David's wife. Almost has a kind of romantic ending. 
Because David listened to Abigail, we have this very blessed conclusion. Her wisdom won him over. Her wisdom won him over. But there's something else that averted this crisis. And it was something that David did years earlier while he was still a teen. So the story doesn't end here. It actually connects back to a journal entry that David wrote in Psalm 19. So if you turn with me there, I'm going to explain what's going on here. As you're doing that, you know, C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian author and apologist, said in specific of Psalm 19 that more than any other psalm, this one portrays the beauty and splendor of the Hebrew poetry found in the Psalter. Psalter meaning the book of Psalms. C.S. Lewis says, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. So what we're going to be reading here is greatly commended by C.S. Lewis. It was quite an endorsement. And as I was reading this by C.S. Lewis, I was thinking how typically Psalm 23 is understood and lauded to be the greatest psalm. But C.S. Lewis said, no, Psalm 19 is the greatest one. And why did he say that? Well, it turns out this psalm is not long. It has three distinct parts, moving from the majestic to the specific to the personal. It begins with David's description of the heavens, then moves to David's description of the law, and ends with his own personal prayer of application. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher in the late 1800s, he was known as the prince of preachers for his eloquence and his power and his anointing and his ability to just captivate hundreds and thousands of people. If you go to London, he preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. He made history because of just how the gospel rocked through the city and the country because of his great oration. And in his comment on this psalm, Psalm 19, Spurgeon said of David, in his earliest days, while keeping his father's flock, David devoted himself to the study of God's two great books, nature and scripture. And he had so thoroughly entered into the spirit of these two only volumes in his library that he was able, with devout skill, to compare and contrast both of them magnifying the excellency of the author as seen in both. And how foolish and wicked are those who, instead of accepting these two sacred tomes and delighting to behold the same divine hand in each, spends all their wits in endeavoring to find discrepancies and contradictions. We may rest assured that the true vestiges of creation will never contradict Genesis, nor will a correct cosmos be found at variance with the narrative of Moses. He is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them. My father wrote them both. So it was this connection between creation and scripture that made this psalm so inspired and powerful and soaring which then led David to feel something and pray something that would change the course of his life forever. So let's read what David wrote. The heavens tell of the glory of God, 
and their expanse declares the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. So David is very aware of the stillness of the night and the quietness on the fields, and yet God is pouring out knowledge to him. And so he's putting this down in poetry form. Verse 5, after talking about this tent for the sun, he says, which is like a groom coming out of his chambers. It rejoices like a strong person to run his course. One of the most glorious events in Jewish culture, and we know in general in civilization, is the whole marriage scene. And the way that the Jewish people conducted their marriage ceremonies was for the groom to come forth from his chambers as he was walking with his entourage to receive his bride. It was a moment of glory, and David connected nature to this cultural thing. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So we get this very distinctive, powerful description of nature and what God is speaking. Then David suddenly changes the narrative, and he talks about the law. But in fact, he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit because what God is speaking in nature, God is also speaking through the law except with greater specificity because now they're in written words that we can study and meditate on. So David says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Have you ever thought that about the law of God? That it restores your soul? Most of the time we think about, oh, it's an obligation, or it's a pain, or it's an inconvenience, or I can't believe I have to do this. David turned that around, flipped around the entire narrative and says, no, the law restores our soul. It revives us. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And for sure, we're living in a generation where wisdom is not near to us, and we're walking in our simple ways. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, much pure gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Now remember, this is a young person saying this. And this, these words are so inspired, they got included into the Bible. Now, I love this transition between verse 10 and verse 11, because David says in verse 11, Moreover, your servant is warned by them. In keeping them, there is great reward. David is saying that in light of the heavens and the scriptures, I now must have this revelation in my heart. It's not enough for me to observe it. It's not enough for me to study it. It's not enough for me to relish the revelation of it, I need it in my life. I need it to be translated into how I live and breathe. I want to do everything that this awesome God desires of me. I want to do all his will. Now let me make a comment in a human way. I think that God read this diary entry of young David and he said, there's my man. We know the scripture says that when King Saul was installed, he quickly went sideways. And as a king, he turned out badly. 
And so God had to look for a new king. But I believe that when God read this diary entry, he said, there's my man. There's my next king. He might be young, but he's the one that will succeed King Saul. This is a man after my heart that will do all my will. In effect, David was laying the foundation for his kingship as a gifted young poet, and he didn't even know it would attract God's attention. Now, one of the things that stands out for me as I meditate on this is the fact that David wrote this while he was so young, while he was yet a teenager. And my mind went to a gal by the name of Amanda Gorman. For those of you that watched the Biden inauguration, just a few weeks ago, in the middle of the inauguration, this young, beautiful black woman got up, just 22 years old, graduate from Harvard University. But at the age of 17, she was selected to be the first national youth poet for the United States of America. I encourage you to go and Google it or look it up on YouTube. Five minutes, she speaks about how the country needed to come back in healing and in unity, and to bridge all the division that had come into the country. It was an amazing, soaring moment, and she basically stole just the the glory of that inauguration. And here was this young person, and I was thinking about how God has invested in young people the ability to articulate and say things that are so inspired, and this is exactly what we have here in Psalm 19. David was but a young boy saying these things. It stirs us to realize there's so much potential in us when we're young. But it goes on because David ended this psalm in these three verses. He says, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of my hidden faults. Help me with my blind spots. And that's exactly what happened with David when he was about to go and kill Nabal. It was a blind spot that was operating. But thank God for Abigail because she saw the blind spot. But here David was praying, who can discern his heirs, acquit me of hidden faults. Keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be innocent and I will be blameless of great wrongdoing. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart Be acceptable in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David almost committed a presumptuous sin in this story. Presumptuous means failing to observe the limits of what is permitted or appropriate. David was about to incur a guilt that would bring him great regret. But God remembered David's prayer from the fields of Bethlehem. He hears our prayer to be godly. God took those early prayers from David's life and transported them and dropped them into the wilderness of Paran, and Abigail was the answer to those prayers. Hence, the storyline was kept from a terrible outcome and a terrible mistake. What you pray now influences your future. Beloved, God has heard and will answer your prayers to be godly. And like David, God will use those prayers to keep you and guide you and protect you 
He will send Abigails and wisdom your way to keep you and watch over you. You may have even forgotten your prayers to be zealous, to be godly, to be wholehearted like David was so that he could do all of God's will. But God has not forgotten your prayers and he uses those prayers for your good. So while David was rescued by Abigail's wisdom, he laid the foundation for it when he was a young man. And this just tells us how God honors our prayers, even prayers that we may have forgotten. I loved what Pastor John read to us during communion from Psalm 56. This I know that God is for me. Now remember, Psalm 56 is written by the same man that wrote Psalm 19. So it could have well been that after this whole thing happened, David wrote into his journal, God is for me. He remembered my prayers when I was a young man. So let's pray today as David prayed. Let's pray. Verse 31, let's pray for godliness. As we enjoy the nature that it's around us here on the West Coast, as we meditate and, and listen to the voice of God pouring forth, as we reflect on the law of God and delighting in it the way that David is, then it will naturally draw us into this place of God. I want all of you. I want to be like you. Make my life a mere image of you. That prayer naturally exudes from your heart. It naturally bursts forth from your heart when you see this God of Jehovah in that way. This is not something we're just asking you to put on the outside externally to make you conform to. No, when you do it from within, there is such a power, and God sees that. So, Father, we come to you right now, and we say like David, we want to do your will. We want to have a heart after you. We want to be godly and not let presumptuous sins rule over us. We want to be blameless and innocent and righteous altogether. We want to be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. We glory in the revelation of creation. We delight in your word. And now let your spirit work deeply in us to make us like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love this story because the two main characters of David and Abigail, they function in a way where they understand something. They understand that God's word and God's presence and who God is and all that God has ordained is more important than anything else. I love that Rich brought out the fact that, that David, in his place of insult, goes out but even before he, he plays out what his presumptions are, that God intervenes in a way where, where he provides for David. We don't think often that this is a provision, but this is a provision. That God intervenes out of the presumptions of our hearts. That David understands the laws. 
that yes, there are things that need to be done, but yet God comes in and says, this is my grace, this is my mercy, and I'm intervening in this place. And then we look at the character of Abigail, and we see Abigail, this wise, wise woman. We don't know why Abigail was married to Nabal. It could have been an arranged marriage. It could have been a marriage where she was in it because she had to be in it. And she understood how God functions, how God works, and what, what, what the wisdom of God has come into her. And so she was an instrument of God. And God used her to intercept something where hundreds of people could have been killed. That there's wisdom that God comes into our lives and he intercepts things that are happening in our lives. That he pours out and he cares for every single thing that happens. The decisions that we need to make, even if they're small, sometimes they're big, sometimes they're small. But that God has his hand in every single thing. That everything that, that we need, we take to prayer. It doesn't have to be something that is worthy of prayer in, in, in that sense of, oh, it's so, it, my things is so small, I don't need prayer for it. But God says, no, that everything you do, take it to me in prayer. That's something that David understood. That's something that David lives out on his daily basis. That's why he was able to write the psalms that he was able to write, the songs that he was able to, 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 to compose. The reason is because David understood that everything I do, I take to God. And because of that fact, we have this story that seems sometimes insignificant. But in so many ways, it reveals just the heart and the character of David. Pastor Rich brought out Psalms 19. Out and it's funny that he brought that out because that's something that I've been studying actually as of late. I love that he brought out that aspect of David understanding what the majesty of God is in his, in his creation and the scriptures that God has imparted into us for law and that the two come together in this most beautiful way. That's something for us as Christians to live out on a daily basis. That there are so many things that can go wrong within this world, even within the church. But that God prevails in all of these things. That we look towards his scripture, we look towards his creation, that's where we find him. And so I just want to encourage you guys to bring all things to him. All things. And that we continue to study and look through the life of David through the book of Samuel. That we start seeing this glimpse of, of this is how David lived because he understood something. And we're called to live that same life. So let's pray. Father God, you are a good God. That you see all things and you know all things. And that we could come before you and we could worship you and in that worship you bring revelation into how we handle our lives situations. So, Father God, may we lift 
every aspect of ourselves in prayer to you. And Lord, may you come and intervene into our lives, just your will and your way of how we are to live. So Lord, we thank you and we give all our worship to you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be blessed. We'll see you guys next week.